0: if i'm being honest i still feel like i don't know what i'm talking about i still feel like i have so much more room to grow to learn to evolve as a leader to evolve as someone in the industry who could be looked up to i don't even see the success that we have and feel like all right i've arrived because i'm just focusing on where we're trying to go and where i'm trying to go when we passed $200 million a few years ago, I remember thinking, wow, that is big. Holy cow. I can't believe we're that big. It had never really sunk in. And so whenever people are like, oh, I can't believe you've done this. This is so cool. I don't really feel like I've done much. If I'm being honest, I don't know. I just don't see it as like, all right, now I arrived. Now I know everything because I'm like, I'm still trying to figure stuff out.
1: Welcome to the 7 Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selik, and I've been on the entrepreneurial rollercoaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the Seven Hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Well, welcome, seven hatters. In this episode, we speak with Cameron Smith and dive deep into hats four, six, and seven, the entrepreneur, the philanthropist, and the seeker as we poke the bear and take a bite out of one of the most destructive CPG brands in the last decade. Cameron is a Shark Tank alumni who along with Joel Clark took Kodia cakes from a red wagon full of paper bags filled with the Clarks family heirloom flapjack mix to a nine-figure, yes, I said it correctly, nine-figure juggernaut who is giving Aunt Jemima a run for her money. Cameron's story is inspirational and his passion, authenticity, and humility are a joy to experience. So, if you're ready to learn how to build a multi, multi million dollar and growing brand from scratch, then let's welcome Cameron to the Seven Hats. Cameron, welcome to the Seven Hats.
0: Yeah, thanks, you all. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to chat. Should be a, should be a great conversation.
1: You're excited. I'm excited to have you on the show. Of course, speaking to a fellow CPG founder is near and dear to my heart. I've had Alex Baer, the founder of Genius Juice, who mm-hmm. innovated the coconut water space. We had Jake Carls, the co-founder of Midday Squares. I don't think I need to say more about that. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Fata, who made it huge and built a new category in hemp with, with Manitoba Harvest and Then there's Don Larson, who quit a high-paying job at Hershey's to start Sunshine Nuts. And then he donates 90% of his revenue back to the people of Mozambique, Africa. And now, Cameron Smith, (laughs) the guy who made Kodiak Cakes a household name and put uh, dear old Aunt Jemima on high alert. But it was not always the case, I'm sure. The glitz and glamour of success were once a twinkle in your eyes. So what I'd like to do is go back, way back, to your early childhood, so we can learn who Cameron is and why you went the path of the CPG entrepreneur. You know, a path only fit for warriors who love pain. So, Cameron, where were you born, and how was your childhood like?
0: Um, You know, Yuval, I love I love that you start there because I completely agree. You know, your upbringing. Shapes so much of how you view the world and it becomes really who you are or rather who you want to be. Um, so I, I was born actually in Provo, Utah and shortly a few years after my parents moved up to Idaho. So I grew up in Idaho and I was the third of seven children. Um, wow. and yep, my dad, my my mom stayed home with with all of us kids, and and my dad taught uh, religion classes to in high school and and the college students. So we we didn't have a lot of money growing up, and I out of all the seven, I'm I'm the only boy, and so uh, you know most six often, girls, six girls. Yep i have I have six sisters, and most often I remember we would we would be eating dinner. And you know, I'd I'd be really hungry, and I I love food, and I'd ask my my parents like, "Hey, can I have more?" And my sisters would always say, "Wait, why why does he get to eat more?" And they're like, "Well, he's a growing boy." But I always remember it's not that there was a shortage of food on the table; there was just always that little fight for for food, and you know, so we didn't we didn't grow up with a lot. I remember we had a van, and we'd all stuff into the van. So for me, I remember always thinking growing up. That I didn't want to stress about money because I hated stressing about money. My parents, it was something they always talked about. Growing up, my dad, he he picked up so many jobs just to kind of help make ends meet. And I remember he would wash windows, and we would go with him, and we'd wash windows at uh, this buffet restaurant. And Saturday mornings, we'd go do that. And sometimes while we were walking out, they they let us grab some of the food. And so I remember as kids, we were like, "Oh, I want to go." I want to go wash windows with dad. Maybe I'll get um, maybe I'll get a free meal. Oh, and you know, he, he did that. He one one time he dressed up as a clown to go to birthday parties to help make a little extra money. We um, we would rake leaves. We would go um, what's called worming, where you would have this big drum of this really smelly solution, and you would pour it down, and a bunch of nightcrawler worms would come up, and you'd grab them and put them in a a container and then go sell them to the, the tackle shop. So, so we, we did that. Um, there was just always, my, my dad was always looking for, um, something more to bring in a little extra cash. And so Mm. that, that kind of stuck with me. And as I, as I grew up, we, we moved to Nebraska. And when I moved to Nebraska, he found in, in the paper that you could sell pop at at the Nebraska football games and, you know, not having a lot of money. We knew the likelihood of us getting into the stadium was not very likely. We weren't, we were not going to buy tickets. And so the prospect of going into the game and selling beverages sounded amazing. And so I started doing that at, um, 12 years old, going into the game and, and selling soda pop and did that for the next nine years. Well, no, it was about seven years the next seven years, every year for uh, the season we'd we'd sell and and i and, and it it taught me that all right, if I work really hard, I can earn my own money, you know so I started buying my own things as I got older because I knew that I might not get them from my parents buying them, but if I could make my own money, I could buy it myself um and you know i I got my first job when I was four, so that this was a separate job, my first ongoing job, like a part-time job. When I, when I was 14, my parents dropped me off because I wanted to earn money. I didn't want to have to always rely, um, just, just on my parents. I wanted that like independence. And so the, you know, those, those type of things, they, they really shape what's possible. And I think for me, I realized growing up that there's a lot of different ways that you can make money. There's not just one path of going into a job here Because my dad was always doing something new and trying something new that, that for me, I was like, man, there's, there's a lot out there that's possible.
1: Wow. That's crazy. So your dad actually had an entrepreneurial spirit, right? And that's kind of where Mm -hmm. you picked it up. Then you went to start a small business as a young child, which is great. So then what did you want to be and where did you go? So you went to college, I'm assuming, right? So when you went to school, what were, what what was the dream?
0: Yeah. So I, so right after, right after high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. The only thing that was clear to me. So, um, I'm a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And and when you're 19, there's, there's an option that you can go and serve a mission and, um, and go to another country. And so, um, or another state or city or or whatever. So I, I turned and I, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. That was the only thing that I knew I wanted to do. So I filled out my papers and, um, Got a call to go to Zimbabwe in Africa. So I was there for two years. And, you know, what's really interesting about that experience, that experience taught me so much and it helped me realize that I could do whatever I wanted to do. I just may have to work harder or I may have to be even more focused to accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. So as a result, when I was finishing that up, I started to see that, okay, I could go to school, I could get like a good degree and I could um, make some things happen. And, um, you know, my dad believed in school. He, um, received his doctorate degree, um, oh, wow. when he was a little bit older. So he, he is very, um, you know, b- believes the benefit of education. And so for me, when I got back, I, I, I went to school. I, I started going to, um, LDS business college now Ensign college here in Utah, and then transferred up to the university of Utah. And I didn't know what I wanted to study because I didn't want to just study marketing. I didn't want to just study operations or finance. I I kind of thought they were all interesting and they were all kind of fascinating to me, learning about the, the different elements of 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 business and, and how it worked. I, I, I had a job where I was working in here in Utah. Well, well at first I was working for the jazz selling tickets. I, I love sports. <laughs> I love the jazz. And so yes. I was, I was selling tickets and did did that for um, about a season, um, and then I started working for a catering company here here in Utah. And then after that, I worked for a company that was based that was selling uh, blank CDs and blank DVDs, just a bunch of other random like audio tech equipment. And then I sold food storage. So I had I, it was it was very eclectic job experience. After I was selling food storage, I was like, you know what, this this is not, I do not want to be selling food storage door to door. This is not sustainable. And I, I like sales. I like talking to people, um, but having to get a new cell every single day, I can't do this. And so then I was like, you know what, it's it's time, it's time to find a job. Like I need to actually find a job that uh, could almost be more like a career. I had about a year, a year left of school at the university of Utah. Um, and so I just started looking at companies and this was 2009 and I was having a hard time. I could not find a job. I couldn't find a place that felt like it was just going to, to work for me. It's not like I had a ton of job offers. I think I had, like, I went to a, went to a couple of job fairs. I went to one and this furniture place was, was like, yeah, come in. And I went there and they gave me an offer and I was like, I do not want to be selling furniture. I do not think I can do this. And so I re- I remember I, I went to one of the job interviews. I went to was at a bank, and it was in like their investing division. And I remember thinking, "Hey, this this would be pretty cool." It's like downtown Salt Lake, uh, one of the upper sort, of upper levels of the of the of the building. And when I went in for the interview, it was going really well. And they said, "Hey, we want you to meet another guy here too." And so, I mean, it, there's always that feeling, right, when they when you meet a few more people, like, "All right, this is this is moving forward," and, you know. The, They'll probably call me tomorrow with a job offer and we'll be, we'll be starting by the following week. And I remember in that interview, it, it was, it was going well. And I have no idea what I was saying in that moment. One of the things that he said to me, as he said, he said, you know, you seem, you seem like you're very entrepreneurially minded in that moment. I mean, for me, I was almost like, thanks yeah. man. <laughs> I mean, I kind of took that as like, yeah, sweet. Like I thought, I thought it was like a positive thing. What I realized later is that wasn't what he was looking for. That wasn't the type of person they wanted. They wanted someone who could go in and, and do the role that they expected and not um, really challenge what, what was possible. needless to say, I didn't get a job offer there. I had another interview that that went South. And so I, I, I just had this moment of what am I supposed to do? What, I don't even know what path I should be on. As I was looking for jobs, I saw this job at, at Kodiak and it said, they're looking for a marketing manager. And I actually passed the job a handful of times because I was like, I'm not a marketing manager. I'm not at that level. I'm just coming out of school. And after like a handful of times passing it, and I looked at all the other jobs that were on the University of Utah's job board, finally, I was like, you know what? I'll just apply to this job too. I remember looking at the website for Kodiak and thinking, I did not like it, it looks really small. The website doesn't look that great. And yeah. I, I don't even know what they do. So I was like, well, but whatever, I'll apply to the job. And, and I remember at that time in the, in the job description, it said like, Hey, please attach a photo. And I remember thinking, attach a photo. That's so weird to attach a photo, but whatever. I, you know, I'll, I'll, and I would just gotten married. Um, a year earlier. And so as I was attaching a photo, I was like, all right, here's my, here's my resume and a photo. You know what? And I remember thinking, I'll attach a photo of my wife and I, so that, um, he can see that I'm, I'm responsible and I'm, I'm married. I'm, I'm, I'm focused. I'm, I'm driven or whatever. And so then, um, you know, Joel reached out to me and he's like, Hey, we'd love to have you come in and, um, and chat with you. I was like, sounds great. And so I went out there, um, and, and met with he and his dad. I remember walking into the building and I was pretty sure I was lost. The city mission was right there. It was this dumpy, like business center type building. Um, and I remember walking in thinking, well, what am I in the wrong place? <laughs> um, and then I saw him and like, there were no windows. It was, um, like it was, I say pretty rundown, and that might be a little bit of an overstatement. But as I look back on it, um, it was not the the nicest place.
1: So you're so now you're you're straight out of college. You meet mm-hmm. a guy named Joel Clark, right? Mm-hmm. And you and joined this pancake company with a bear as the logo, right? You got you got mm-hmm. the job. I don't think it's a secret. Right? You got the job. Yep. So you got this Kodiak cake job. Tell us the story of that interaction. So when you first saw Joel. What did you think of him and how did he convince you to risk everything to join a CPG comp startup because i guarantee you that as a founder he had to convince you of something so what happened what's that interaction look like
0: Yeah you, you know you've all, it's it's really funny because as i look back it doesn't feel like i was convinced i was looking for something i was looking to contribute i was looking to to be involved to learn to to grow. Um, I remember meeting, so when I met with Joel, his dad was also there cause his dad had been working with him for a period of time. And so
2: mm-hmm.
0: the meeting with both of them and, you know, Kodiak, we have a very, um, laid back culture and, um, and, and attire. And I, I walked in with a suit and tie cause that's what you do when you interview. Right. Yes. Um, and today if someone walked into with a suit and tie on a Kodiak, it would be like, Man, why are they so stuffy? <laughs> you know, it's like, a, we're, yeah. we're more laid back than that. So, I, I remember, um, when I was chatting with them, we, we, we hit it off really well. Joel's dad had gone down a, almost the exact same career path as my dad had. And so there was a similarity in how we were raised in that scrappiness of, of, of growing up. And, and I remember talking to Joel and I just started getting ex- excited about hey, this brand. This is kind of cool. And we kind of grow this and, and I, and th- there's, it's just us. And I remember talking to Joel and saying, well, do you have Facebook? Do you have any of these social media platforms? And, and, and Joel's like, no, nope, I don't even know really what those are. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, oh man, this would be so cool. And I walked out of the interview. I remember I called my wife and I was like, that was really good. I actually really hope that works out. Cause that was really cool. And I think I'd really like that a lot. And then a couple of days later, Joel calls me and is like, Hey, we'd, we'd like to offer you a job. And and I was like, awesome. And I think he called me on a Friday and I was like, yeah, I can come in on Monday. Because, <laughs> you know, I was just like chomping at the bit, ready to yeah. go. And it was like, I was, I was so excited to start it. And I had no idea in that moment what I was getting into now, looking back almost 13 oh, yeah. years ago.
1: If you did, like, you wouldn't have done it. If you did, I promise you it would have been scary as hell.
0: Yeah, I would have been like, yeah. there's no way. Yeah, I mean, if you told no me, way. hey, you guys are going to be this big you're gonna have to. Yeah. I'd be like, no, I, I don't believe it. Or I'd say, how? How are yeah. we going to do yeah. that? I, I, don't, I don't see it.
1: Did you get the co-founder title right away?
0: I didn't. No. Nope. Um, so the, the, it, was, it was interesting there in the beginning, because I think a lot of times, you know, Joel had been doing Kodiak for a while. The family had been doing it for a while. And here I am coming out of my undergraduate degree at the University of Utah. I'm 24 years old. And the, the last thing Joel's going to do, who's put a lot into this and family's putting a lot of this is say, all right, here you go. We're going to make you a co-founder and you're going to be president. We're going to run this together. It's like, heck no, I don't know who this kid is. I don't <laughs> know what he can do. And I don't think he knows what he can do. Yeah. Um, and so there was a lot of almost like kind of earning your stripes, the type of thing, which, which I think there's a real value in that. And, and, and for me, I was very much like I had blinders on. I had no idea what was or what wasn't possible. And so I was like, well, let's do this. And let's, let's, let's call this person. And, um, and and I was really just pushing it. And, and I think what, what Joel started to see over time is he started to see, oh, wow. You like, man, with, without you, we wouldn't be here. And I feel the opposite way. I feel like without Joel, I wouldn't be here. You know, like, I wouldn't have been where I got to without him helping me and, and allowing me space to, to test and to fail and to call people and to have a bad call. I mean, I remember one time Joel was like, he, he gave me a list of like, instead of saying, Hey, give Kroger a call. Like, yeah. no, no, no. That was like, that, that'd be like <laughs> big risk. Right. Yeah. So instead he's like, Hey, why don't you call these small gift shops that we used to sell to in Jackson Wyoming, these uh, small like, ski towns. I mm-hmm. was like, all right. And um, so I started calling them and I was like, hey, some of them want samples. Can we send, send samples? And he's like, yeah, they just have to pay for the product and shipping. <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, I remember selling tickets for the jazz and that was hard. Yeah. But I'm asking people here, like, hey, you've all, you should come and um, try Kodiak in your shop.
2: Yeah. you Send
0: me samples. Yeah. You got to pay. 30 bucks for the samples, and you're like, I'm good, man. I don't, I don't yeah, exactly. really want it. Um, and so I remember, like, I called like a couple pages of the list and just thought to myself, man, this is like, I don't know, if this is worth it. Well, one of the jobs that I had in high school was in Nebraska at a high V. And I remember thinking, if we could get into high V, if I can get there, uh, you know, then I might be able to like grow more. And at this time, Joel started on me on a, um, Commission. He was like, Hey, well, I'll, oh, like, nice. I'll pay commission for sales. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, I'm not going to call these small independents. I'm going to call Hy-Vee. I'm going to start calling bigger places. And so I found, um, the name for the person at Hy-Vee. I called Hy-Vee up got to the operator and I said, Hey, can you, um, send me to the pancake buyer? Yeah, sure. You got it. And I called a handful of other people and no one ever answers their phones. And this pancake buyer answers his phone. And I was like, oh, um, <laughs> I remember, like I, like I was, I had no idea what I was talking about. Told him about Kodiak. Told him what I'd like to do. Um, it, he actually was like pretty nice. But he was like, yeah, like we're not interested, and um, we've got these other things. Um, but I remember I took a lot of notes, and I called Joel after, and Joel's response was 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 just was so great for me because his response was, oh, cool, man. That's awesome. So what do you say? He said this. Okay. And, and his response was not at all. What the crap are you doing?
2: Don't yeah, call those yeah.
0: guys unless you talk to me. It was very much. Oh, cool. What do you say? What do they talk about? Okay. So, and, and, and he was very much like, okay, I'll, I'll coach this guy. Like he could see that I just had this like ambition and I was just hungry and I was going to do stuff. And so instead of reining me in, he was more just like, give me those guides. Hey, think about it this way. Hey, when you call them, talk about it this way. And, and so anytime Joel and I would travel, I would just ask questions and we would just talk about things. And it just helped me understand this industry even more. And I thought really early, man, Joel, if these guys can sell this product in, we for sure can, we can figure it out. We might not know, but we can figure it out. And, um, but he was just so supportive of me that I think if I would have gone anywhere else and not had that type of person yeah. that I, I don't think I would have been as successful because Joel let me be who who I was while still guiding and directing me along the way um, and then over time as it got bigger you know I, I got to the point that I was like hey Joel I like I'd love to know if equity is an option I, I was not on the table you didn't get the equity beginning. initially no and I didn't even that because I didn't know anything about equity I didn't wow. even know that I should go in and ask for a piece of the company and once again if as a 25, 24 year twenty-four-year-old, if I would have gone in there, and been like, "Who's this hot shot Think he is? He hasn't done anything yet or proven anything yet." So, no, I'm not giving you a piece of my company. I remember just um, learning about it, and you know, we we were starting to grow a little bit, and, and we're doing a few million dollars in sales. So when I joined, we were doing we had done they had done a million dollars in sales, and I remember we were doing a few million dollars in sales, and someone told me about it. And They're like, "You should really ask about it before the company gets really big." And I remember thinking, "Oh yeah, that's probably good. I should ask." So I remember talking to Joel and saying, "Hey." Joel is is equity an option. And in in that moment, Joel was like, Yeah, you know, um, I think if like if you had like an MBA or or maybe over time, like everything that he was saying, it's like it makes sense, right? You're not just gonna say, here you go. It's like, no, you need to prove yourself and you need some time to prove yourself. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. And and we continued to have the conversations. And our equity conversations is almost two years before we got to the point that Joel was like, okay, we'll do some equity. We've grown a lot. And, and he was able to see that I was contributing. I was able to see that I was contributing. And we were, and we started just building this really good partnership that when we would travel, we had a lot of fun. We, we'd share hotel rooms. Um, we would, we would just, we would, our, our pillow talk was talking about what we could do with Kodiak and items we could launch. And it just, everything and those are the
1: f- best times right with a co f- oh, if you have so a good fun. co-founder my first co-founder was a nightmare but really? my oh it was a nightmare i mean you are so lucky to f- to have a good co-founder in your first round
2: mm-hmm. now my
1: current co-founder promash is awesome and that's kind of what we do we smoke cigars drink some scotch and talk about whatever but those were the fun days man and when you first start the business
0: oh yeah i'm not i mean it was it was so awesome and so 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 what started happening is, is Joel started to see like I, I, I was I wanted to grow in my career and, and I wanted to do more. And he was like, you know, the more I've thought of, I mean, and, and, and he gave me equity and we got to a really good place that I was super happy about it. He was happy about it. And he was like, you know, it, it, well, when we got to the point where we were starting hire head of sales and, and head of marketing, I remember telling Joel, like, look, I don't just want to be a salesperson. I don't want to be a marketing person. I love those Functions in the business and operations, like I love all of them. I was like, but I really want to be here, and and he gave me that opportunity. And so when we started bringing those roles on, instead of me being oversells, we brought that person on, and I was able to be, you know, like a president and and partner with Joel. And he's like, you know, he's like, really, he's like, you're like a co-founder. And Joel's like, look, I'm a co-founder because his brother actually started the business. And Joel's like, there's a lot of us that are co-founders, and we're co-founders in different stages. You know, and it doesn't have to be. You're a co-founder because you started it from the very beginning. It's no, you're a co-founder because you you helped take it from this point to this point. The really crucial points for the organization and for the for the brand. And so, like, it, it, it was just so awesome because for me, Joel was able to do for me everything and even more than I realized I wanted or or needed in my just career path and and had a lot of success along the way and we've had we've had a lot of fun i mean for, for joel and i it's just it's just crazy for both of us to to see where we've landed but but that's like it, it was a, it was a process getting there right it was not okay we're gonna give you title of president we're gonna give you like we're gonna give you this whole package um and i didn't deserve that <laughs> like yeah. it, it, it would have it made no sense for him to get that all to me in the beginning
1: Let me ask you a question. I know it's hard to go back and and answer this question, but would you, would you have walked away if you didn't?
0: You know, I, my personality is like, I'm really loyal to, to people and it would have been really hard to walk away in, in those moments. I did feel like, you know, we had a conversation and one of the conversations we had, you know, Joel had mentioned, like, if you want a lot of equity, like, that's kind of tech. You should maybe go do tech. And I remember thinking in that moment, should I do tech? I kind of (laughs) like this industry. I love, personally, I love food. I mean, I I grew up loving pancakes. And so, like, I had no idea that this was an industry that you could go down this path that you could, like, Deal with food, and so I I absolutely loved it. But I remember thinking, you know what, that might not be a possibility here at Kodiak. Um, that's fine. And pretty early on, I was thinking, Joel, we should sell Kodiak, and I was trying to encourage him to do that so we could do something else because nice. I was like, this is kind of like your guys' family thing. Let's let's do something else. And so, in in short, would I have left uh, potentially over time? I mean, I think it would have depended on. A lot of different things, but in short, uh, potentially.
1: Yeah. And the, the reason I asked is because a lot of founders who are in the situation, Joel's situation, where they bring on uh, additional staff, they don't want to give away equity. Equity is one of those things for founders that is just so sacred. And I think that's a problem with my CTO, for instance, when we brought him in, he was, you know, he wasn't a CTO previously. But he was very smart and he had a lot of potential. We knew, my co-founder and I, because we were 50-50, we decided to do that because we didn't want to argue over anything, right? So Mm 50-50, you don't argue. You just kind of settle it, right? And I could have taken more. It was my idea. So I could have taken more. I didn't. And then when the CTO came in and the first few people in the company came in, we gave them shares. We gave them equity because we knew that without that, we can't pay you right yeah. no one got paid really anything for the first mm-hmm. god knows how many years and oh, yeah. they really took a leap of faith and for that we we gave them equity so i love yeah, that oh, yeah. i love the 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 realness there so now that we're we're being real every entrepreneur faces insurmountable challenges you're mm-hmm. at that point a million to a million dollar company which is not bad but it's not big mm-hmm. right as you know they 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 face insurmountable challenges they birth and grow their baby and cpg is no exception and might be one of the tougher industries, I think, an entrepreneur mm-hmm. will tackle. What were some of the more notable challenges that you faced as you entered retail? Uh, because you were kind of in chops, you weren't really into major retail stores at that point. What were the insurmountable challenges that had you on the bathroom floor in fetal position? Maybe I'm the only CPG founder that experienced <laughs> that feeling, but I doubt it. So I'm sure you got some juicy stories Tell us about those initial couple years where it was that major grind and you were asking yourself the question, man, did I make the right decision? And what were those issues?
0: Yeah. Um, You know, you all, it's interesting. I I am by nature an optimistic person and, uh, you know, for me, I am very much that that energetic, let's do it. Let's go. Let's try this out. Let's test this. Nice. That felt fine. Let's, let's, let's adjust. Let's do this. And, and and I am like that. That's just kind of how I'm wired. And I think that was so valuable for Joel and for us in those early days. I mean, if you think Joel had been doing Kodiak for a while and through all that work and energy from his brother, launching it to his brother, um, you know, there, there's a picture that we have where his brother one day is just done with Kodiak. And he's like, why the crap did I do this? He took a bunch of boxes, he threw it against the wall and, and just like, I won't say panic attack because that, that's an overstatement. Um, but he broke down and he was like, why would I do this? And so he had that and, and Joel had his moments of what am I doing? I'm, I'm trying to make this little pancake company work. And so they had just been beaten down and and beaten down. So I think that allowed me when I came in and had this energy, this youthful energy um, and blinders that I didn't know what was possible. I didn't know what the limits were for Joel. I think it was like, wow, I feel a little more energy. Wow. I I, I think we can actually do this. Um, Now with that said, there, you're you're exactly right. I mean, there were in in those in those earlier days. I remember one of the retailers that I called was. Um, so we had brokers. We had brokers that were representing us at various retailers. And these brokers, they like they they work for you at the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. Because you pay them a portion yep. of sales that that they help secure at whatever retailer. Mm-hmm. So I called one of our brokers one time. And said, hey, I noticed roundies in the Midwest um, used to carry Kodiak. I'd love to see if we can get it back in. And the broker said, that's not going to happen. And they pulled it out. They're not going to bring it back in. Um, I think we should just um, you know, see if they can get in through like KHE or distributor. Um, but it just may be what it is because it's too expensive. And And the broker told me all the hurdles and all the reasons not to. And I remember thinking, man, this broker is a real downer. <laughs> I remember thinking, man, I don't know. I don't know about that. And I didn't take it at face value. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to call roundies. Um, yeah, nice. And I'm just going to talk to the buyer. And so I called. And once again, the buyer actually answered. And I was like, oh, shoot. And I said, hey, we have Kodiak and I'm glad to come. I'll be out there on this certain day. I didn't have a schedule to be out there. Anytime I said I was going to be out there, it was just, to make it easier on them. And I was like, I'll be out there this day. I'd love to talk to you about Kodiak. And I'm like, well, we did use to carry it. And I was like, yep, but that was through Kahee. So the pricing, or that was through distributor there, so the pricing or whatever, um, loved to go direct. And the buyer's like, um, all right, well, why don't you come out here and we can talk about it? And I remember thinking, okay, sweet, Joel, I got the appointment, let's, let's, let's go out there. And we went out, we met with roundies, and um that that buyer, I'm still actually in touch with her. Um, she works at a brand now. Um but I remember, I, I remember thinking, man, she's really tough. Like, I'm, I don't know how this will go. And, and after the, and, and remember I'm, I'm tied to commission at this point. And so I want yeah, these sales of more than just building the brand because well, this is building my wallet. And I remember walking out of that, like, Oh man, Joel, I don't know how that went. And Joel's like, I thought that went great. And I'm thinking, were we in the same meeting? <laughs> he thought it went great. And I didn't like, really? And he's like, yeah, I thought it went really well. He's like, I think she'll give us a shot. And I'm like, man, all right. And, and she did, and she brought nice. it in. And, um, but, but like there, there were like, there were those challenges of, man, can, can we even make this work? And we, we had that with, with another retailer, you know, really smaller retailer in the not smaller retailer, but a retailer in the Southeast, Um uh, we were doing a distributor show and, um, working with our brokers to try and uh, meet with some of the different retailers. And one of the bigger ones was at the show and the, our broker's like, Hey, she's over there. And I was like, I'm going to go talk to her. Usually, you know, you wait in your booth until they come by and then you hope to bring them in and then you hope to give more pitch then. But I was like, no, this is a show I need, I need to go like talk to her. Cause nice. like, I got, I got to try and introduce Kodiak to her. And so I walk over and I'm like, Hey, I'm Cameron from Kodiak cakes. We have the pancake mix. I'd love to talk to you about it. And she gives me like this kind of funny look and I was like, "Huh? yeah, don't you think Kodiak cake sounds a little like, I don't know, bear droppings <laughs> or something. And I'd, I'd actually never thought that when she said <laughs> that, I was like, oh, and I guess I should saying." Yeah. I was like, yeah. okay. Um, and then she's like, and I don't know. I mean, the, the brand just seems really masculine. So I just don't know that it'll work. And I was like, well, I mean, I think if you get to try it, I could work or whatever. And I remember walking away, just thinking, like, well, shoot, man, that was that was kind of a bummer. But I think I I think selling food storage, you know, going back a few years before selling that food storage door to door when I was in Africa on my mission, going door to door, knocking on people's doors and saying, hey, I have a message I want to share with you, and people saying, I'm not interested, go away, please. And I was, ne- I'm, I was never like a pushy type of person. I never wanted people to um, feel like they're pushed to either hear about my message or to buy food storage or, or anything. But I think both of those experiences built this sort of resilience in my mind that, well, some people say no, and that doesn't mean it's you should stop it entirely. That just means for them, based on what they can see today... It, it doesn't make sense. And so with, um, you know, roundies and then with that Southeast retailer, both of those, like, in those moments I was like, Oh, that's a bummer. But I was like, okay, who else could we work with? Like, it was very much like, all right, onto the, onto the next thing, because I like, I don't know, I, I didn't wallow in those challenges. Um, it's not a good place to live and just being optimistic person, like, person, I'm like, that's okay. They'll come back to it. They'll see that they, that they should have carried it. And, and, I can say today that both those retailers are doing really well with Kodiak. Very they nice. It, it is working today.
1: <laughs> and I was going to say, I was thinking about, you know, if you want to be a good salesperson, you go on a mission. You know, yeah. that, that, that would teach you how to be a good, oh, yeah. a, good, a good salesperson. So what other big issues did you face that were in, kind of insurmountable? So a lot of CPG food brands have like manufacturing issues shipment yep. issues, any, something like, cause I really want to allow the audience to understand not just the good things yeah. that happen with the company. I really yeah. want to help them understand if those who are listening right now want to start a CPG brand, which a lot do mm-hmm. tell them what they're going to be expecting, because I guarantee you, you've been through what every single CPG brand, especially in the food and beverage space, what kind of logistics or, or maybe manufacturing issues that you have in the beginning. Where you might have not met demand, maybe got discontinued from stores because of it, that others should watch for
0: Oh yeah, um yeah, you're exactly right finding finding the right contract manufacturer, uh, people who can make the product for you, that was challenging. you know, we had a really good partner there in the beginning. they didn't give us any terms, you know they basically said you need to pay before we produce it wow. and then we'll produce it for you that was incredibly challenging to yeah. have to pay for the product before it's produced. And so I know Joel felt that uh, pressure even more. Cause for me, I was like, let's go, go, go. And Joel was like, oh man, that's, that's pretty painful. When we got target, our initial target order was 250,000, uh-huh. which, you know, for a $2 million business, like that was a big order. Huge. And their terms on those first orders is 60 days. So instead of 30 days, it's 60 days. Yeah. So if you put the math together, we were buying the inventory before we produced it. And then Target wasn't going to pay us for 60 days. So we weren't going to get paid on that product, that really big order for the business for effectively 90 to maybe a hundred days. And like, I remember we were stressed. And we were like, how are we going to make this work? We don't have the cash. We don't have the cash in the bank. And I remember talking to Joel and Joel's like, man, I might have to, I might have to chat with my dad. I might have to like go and talk to him and and he has a line of credit on his house. I think, I think we can maybe make that work. And he's like, Hey, can you call the target buyer and ask him if he he can release payment earlier than 60 days? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And so he went and talked to his dad and his dad's like, yep, here you go. Here's the, here's the money to, to produce the order. And I talked to the target buyer after it was ordered. And I remember talking to the target buyer and saying, Hey, is there any way you can release payments sooner? We really kind of need the money to keep doing the business. And the target buyer was awesome. He's like, yep, let me see what I can do. And he's like, yep. I talked to my accounting team. We were able to release that. So they released it like 20, 30 days earlier. And so for us, it was like, okay, that's a big deal, but you're right. I mean. The, the whole chicken and the egg question or dilemma, it is real in CPG. Do you get the co first? Do you get the cells first? And then I, balancing all of those to support one another, it's, it's, it's a puzzle and you'll, you'll stub your toe, we stub our toes um,
1: a lot. How did you deal with slotting fees? I mean, if you had to pay up front and you put in some slotting fees, you were not a funded company, you were self funding. How did you deal with that?
0: We got very creative. We would always, you know, Joel and I often talked about this. If you don't ask the question, then you actually don't know what the response is. And yeah. so if a retailer says, Hey, slotting's a hundred bucks a store or 50 bucks a store or whatever, and you say, Okay, sounds good. Here you go. What does it hurt to say, Hey, is there any way? You can waive that slotting fee or can we put that into trade spending? We'll spend more the first year or two if you'll allow that. And not everyone, but there were some that were like, yeah, we'll do that because we care more about getting the sales than just that placement fee. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we were really creative, but there were some, I remember I, I randomly called Loblaws up in Canada this is in 2014, right? When we launched our um, pancakes in a cup or our muffins in a cup, not pancakes, muffins in a cup. And I called Loblaws. They're the one of the biggest retailer in Canada.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And the buyer's like, yeah, I can actually meet with you this Thursday. uh, If you can get up here. And I was like, oh shoot, Thursday, that's like three days away. (laughs) And I was like, I think I can do that. And so I actually booked a flight and got up there. My passport expired the following week. And so I was like, this is perfect. I'll get out there. Hopefully, I don't have any issues and get stuck in Canada. So I flew out there. I met with the buyer, and the buyer was like, "Yeah, these cups are really interesting. I love this. What a, what a great idea! I, I want to bring it in. Can I bring in these four cups? Um, and our slotting's usually fifty grand per item, so the slotting would be two hundred. Oh no, no, it was seventy five. It was seventy five. She's like, slotting would be three hundred, but I could give it to you for two fifty for these four items. What do you think? And I'm sitting here in the moment and I'm still pretty young. And I'm like, uh, (laughs) shoot. Um, and I remember I'm like texting Joel. Hey, she wants to do slotting this, what what, what should should we do it? And he's like, I I, I don't know that we should do that. I don't know that that makes sense. And, and so I remember telling her, look, let me think about it. I'll get back to you in a couple of days. I need to talk to uh, my partner about this and see if this is something we want to do. I remember going and talking to Joel and I was like, Joel, this, they got a thousand stores. This could be really big. They want to like go big with it. And he's like, man, I don't know that we can pay for that. And I'm like, yeah, I, I might pay for itself over time. And he's like, I don't know that we can do it. So we said, no, we said no because of slotting. That oh. wasn't the only example where we said no because of slotting. Like we were not just going to say yes to everyone. Cause we want to get on the shelf. We were, we were trying to be mindful from a P and L standpoint and making sure that we're not just, blowing through cash everywhere. So there were opportunities that we said no to because financially it didn't make sense, Um, which was hard in the moment because like I said, I was getting commission, And so for me, I'm like, that's commission for me, but it helped me learn the valuable lesson of not every cell is created equal and you need to make sure that you're getting out of it what you want, what you need.
1: Totally agreed. And the number one lesson for CPG entrepreneurs, and those who don't know what a slotting fee is. Slotting fee is a way to get into or buy your way into, get your product on the shelf. And that's very common in the CPG industry. Basically, it puts all the risk onto the company and the brand and zero risk on the retailer. The retailer's perspective is, hey, we'll give you a a, a shot, but I don't want to take the risk. So if you're going to sell like you think you're going to sell, great. And if you're not, well, too bad. You just took a risk. And on one hand, I can see where they're coming from. but On the other hand, I think it's crappy for emerging brands. But the, the number one lesson here for all CPG founders who are starting out, mm-hmm. here's your number one lesson. When you start in the first few years, your number one goal is to figure out who your customer is, what they think, will they repurchase, and utilize your cash flow effectively so you're not overspending because every retailer you get into, you got to support. We'll talk about that in a second. I'm going to ask you a question about support, but that's the game, right? Trade spend. If Costco comes to you and says, Cameron, got a nice product. I'm going to put you in all 3,000 stores or whatever, how many stores Costco has. You should say no, if you're just starting out. Because what's going to happen is that you're going to get this big order or you might have slotting fees or whatever it might be. And if you can't support the stores, you're just going to get discontinued over time. And so that initial ramp, you got to do it slow. You got to get into smaller regions, work your way up to larger stores. You're taking a huge chance. I had a brand who were, who, who's a client of ProMesh took a huge brand just going into one retailer target. No yeah, money.
2: You know, yeah, I that's mean, that's you just
1: all. insane.
0: Yeah, I, you're, you're, you're not wrong. I had, um, I had a brand that I was talking to a couple months back. And, um, they asked me, they said, Hey, which retailer is the most important? Like, which one should we really focus on? And I was like, whoever will give you a shot. And they're like, yeah, but, but, but like, which one's the most important? And I was like, "Whoever is going to give you a shot. That's who's most important. Because if you're sitting here thinking, well, Kroger is the most important or Walmart or Target or Costco or Safeway or any of those retailers, if those are the most important, then the other retailers can tell that you don't value them as much. And if you don't value them as much, you're not prioritizing them. They can tell and feel that. So then when other brands come up or when they need to discontinue items, they're not hesitant to discontinue yours because you haven't treated them that way. So really whoever will bring you in, that's who you should focus on and that's who you should build your story and your brand with to then prove out to other retailers that, Hey, it will work here because it's worked with this retailer. And this is why we believe that like, you're trying to build a story, and you and you're exactly right. Like Costco is a great retailer. We built a story with Costco, but we started with road shows. We didn't start with hundreds of stores. We knew what the potential was. We knew that if we got into Costco big, it could be huge. But Costco wasn't going to just say, "Hey, we'll bring it into every club." because yeah. that's not what they do. They said, "Yeah, we'd love to test it," and we're like, "Let's do road shows." So we went and did road shows, which you go to one Costco and you're there for four days, four to five days. And you're sampling product um, and you're selling product and doing those road shows. I worked the road show. Joel worked the road show. His dad worked the road show. His wife did. My wife did. My sister helped. Like it was very much like, hey, who can come and help us work road shows? And I remember at those road shows, Joel and I, we were selling hard because yeah. we wanted to prove to Costco that it was worth it for them to bring the product in. Yeah. And then even when they did bring it in, they're like, yeah, it's selling pretty well, guys. But how big are your sales because we don't want to be more than a certain percentage of your business. And so we had to like, they were kind of capping what we could do. And so it forced us to say, we've got to continue to build this story outside of just Costco so that we can build it more in Costco. Um, but, but you're exactly right. Like you, you have to like, it's so exciting when you have a lot of retailers that are excited and energized behind the brand. It's also very easy to get ahead of your skis Because you can go in all these areas and then before you know it, you see brands that aren't around anymore and you're like, what happened to that brand? I thought they were doing really well. They went faster than they could run.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll get to the next question. We'll actually talk about that. I mean, the the point is we got, when I was selling Luvala to retail, my my skincare line back in 2006, seven, we got into Whole Foods right away. We got into Sprouts. We got into most of the natural stores, and that literally was the reason we we went out of business. If we were going, if we did it smarter, if we got into the local regions, you know, and spend the money we had on trade spend, which is next topic I want to discuss, we would have been just so much better and could have had more r- runway. But you know, I remember a broker telling me we got into a Whole Foods uh, region, I think it was uh, the Midwest region, and we're like, well, we're going to support every store, and the guy's like. Dude, you are not going to support every store. It's not going to happen. You, you don't have the money. I'm not, I'm not going to participate in this shenanigan. So anyway, so that's, that's the thing. So a few years ago by, you're now expanding into retail. You're seeing the fruits of your labor. The biggest issue I see in CPG is not what many think, right? Many think that getting placement on the shelf, and that's the big deal. But it really isn't. You know, with some elbow grease, it can be done like you did, right? Just store, just calling up stores. The challenge that I see in retail is staying on the shelf. And of course, to stay on the shelf, you have to sell off the shelf. Now, when you're selling to a buyer, it's a one-to-one relationship. You can tell your story. Everything's great. They buy in, they get by your product. When you're now not talking to one person, you're speaking with everyone and you don't have the resources to just educate everyone like a Coca-Cola might with a hundred million dollar, you know, a month budget. And you have a competitive space, right, that you're playing in, especially with household names that are go-to for most people. And they won't even think about taking on another childhood, you know, it's their childhood memory, right? So raising awareness and telling a story is very expensive. And it's critical to get it right before, like I said, being discontinued. How did you navigate trade spend? For those who don't actually know what trade spend is, it's the cost of promoting at retail with tactics such as in-store demos price reductions, coupons, et cetera, ads, what worked, what didn't, and what would you do differently today if you can go back and do it all over again?
0: That's a great question, Yuval. You're, you're exactly right that if, if you think about it, you have a great idea, great product that you're really excited about, and you go talk to, you name the retailer, they're interested in the product. They, what they want to know is, how are you going to get off the shelf? And how are consumers going to know about this product? That was what we were kind of faced with. We didn't have a big marketing budget, to your point. And I remember Joel and I were talking often about, all right, what could we do to get a almost like a big PR hit? So people would hear about the brand and go to stores to grab the product off the shelf. And it was so hard to think about what was, what we could do there. And that's actually where Shark Tank came from. We, we were talking and, and I had watched Shark Tank for a couple of years. And Joel and I were like, I was like, Joel, what if we got on Shark Tank? Knowing how many people were watching that, because that was a way to drive awareness. And, uh, you know, you know, the story, we went on Shark Tank and got a lot of awareness. And unfortunately, we didn't do a deal. It did help drive awareness to the brand and, and therefore to Target. And so if you're a brand and you're walking into the store and you're telling Target, you got to carry it because this is a differentiated product in the category, so on and so forth. What are you going to do different than anyone else? Everyone spends on trade. um, And to your point, those bigger brands spend significantly on marketing outside the store and even inside the store. Of course. And so you have all these odds stacked up against you. And if you think you're just going to put the product on the shelf and it's just going to fly off the shelf.
1: Yep, big mistake.
0: you yeah you'll 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 struggle um especially if you spend a ton of money in slotting so then what you might do is you may say well then i'm just going to do some really deep discounts just to get people stuffing it in their carts and i'm yeah. going to do you know my products five bucks a box i'm going to do a 10 for 10 and i'm just going <laughs> to discount it just because yeah. i want a ton of trial
1: yeah we
0: don't want to do that because that's also going to create behaviors in consumers yeah, and consumers like, yeah right so like so for us, we, like our trade was not aggressive. You know, we were very um, mindful in how much we were spending in trade. You know, there was a time, I remember this very distinctly, we were at a distributor food shows. So we went to a ton of distributor food shows um, there for a few years, Joel and I would. And one of them we went to, we were talking to a small East coast retailer that had like 15 stores. Like they were not huge, but they they had a pretty good amount of stores over there. And they were talking to us about slotting and about trade. And I remember in the conversation just things weren't adding up for me because I remember before talking to Joel and we would hesitate to pay 20 grand for 2000 Kroger stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it was 20 grand, but roughly, let's just throw that on rather. 20 yeah. grand for 2000 Kroger stores, but paying 5000 for 15 stores we were like, I think we can make that work. And I remember thinking, like, something's not adding up. Per store, we're paying 10 bucks per Kroger store. Uh, and it was more than that, but just to illustrate the point. Yeah. 10 bucks there. And here, for 15 stores, we're essentially paying 750 bucks a store? Wait yeah. a second. And I don't know that the Kroger store is going to be less effective than this store. I actually think the Kroger store is going to be double or triple the unit volume that this store would. And so what that caused out of Joel and I, we were like, you know what? I'm like, Joel, we should probably accrue based on how many how much we think they're going to do in sales. So if we think they're going to do a uh, 100,000 in sales, we should accrue a percentage of those sales to go towards trade spend and, yeah. and maybe even to go towards slotting. And so we were like, all right, we, we've got to build that. And it was really hard to think about how we would accrue for that and how we would calculate it. And then when we brought on a, 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 our CFO, that was one of the first projects that I started working on with him is, hey, is there a way that we could build a software that could track this? And so he built an Excel doc that has every account manager on every account and they had their budget and they would yep. enter in their cells and it would calculate, here's how much you can spend on trade. Because we wanted to make sure that we weren't blowing the budget on some accounts because the dollars didn't seem like a lot. Yep. It felt like, oh yeah, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000. We're okay with that. We were getting to 20, 30, 40, 50. We hesitate more, but we don't want to be hesitating with those when they'll drive a whole lot more. Let's just put it into the calculator to identify how much to spend. And so when it came to trade, we weren't necessarily aggressive, but what we tried to do is pulling it off the shelf, we tried to get to consumers. So we tried to understand where are our consumers at? What do they care about? So we had, you know, millennial moms that we were talking to, we had athletes and, and people who were, who cared about their nutrition. And so we would, you know, I reached out to bloggers really early on. We, we started, I was like, Hey, we should do races and events. We should go to five K's and half marathons and sample product as people are trying and, and hand out product. and And basically like, let's be in a lot of places where people are and let's reach out to influencers and send them product. And make relationships and connections. And what that started doing is that started to create this community and um, just people talking about Kodiak and getting really energized around it. And that helped pull it off the shelf. So we didn't have to rely on the trade spend because that's going to be challenging because everyone else in the category is doing trade spend. So we thought, how can we be different in the category, connecting with consumers so that they would go and tell their friends and go into the store and talk about the, the product. So that was like it it's it's that one two punch that really you're having to do everywhere. Cause you're exactly right. Getting on the shelf, that's great and that's exciting, but you got to get off the shelf. Getting off the shelf is all about the consumer. So do the consumers know about you? Are they aware? Are you connected to them? And how are you talking to them in a real and an authentic way so that they'll go there and they become those advocates for the brand?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're it's so you're so right. And the problem with trade spend, and that's why. You know, when I failed in retail, I created ProMesh specifically to help brands manage trade spend because what happens is without really understanding what's going on and spreadsheets are really difficult. You know, it's a must when you start, but it's really difficult when you have 14 spreadsheets. Every broker has a spreadsheet. You got financial spreadsheets. You don't have one single source of truth. So you don't understand what your real trade spend is. And I forget about deductions. That's a whole other story that I could probably take a whole interview on. Right. But we're talking about not understanding, and, and so what happens with brands, smaller brands, is they budget for 15%, let's say, of their total revenue, top-line revenue for trade spend. And then at the end of the year, they figure out they spent 23%. And then like, they have to figure out like, what the hell am I gonna do with the difference? Because yeah. I have to fire people, or I have to go out and get a loss or raise money. And I think that's, that's, a, big, that's a big problem that brands face. And, and again, yeah. I think trade spend is the number one consideration that every CPG founder needs to think about, not just the product, not just the packaging, not all the good good stuff, not the fun part of marketing and creating it Mm -hmm. and getting into the store. You have to have a plan for how you're gonna spend your money to sell to shoppers because they don't know who you are. And and this is even, even, actually this leads me to the next question, right? So you're in a competitive space and I think we should address the elephant in the room, right? And Jemima Bisquick, these are childhood names, right? I'm assuming when you were an unknown brand, you're kind of doing your demos and you're, you're handing out little bags, right? They didn't care much. But when right. your journey is towards 100 million and then you reach 200 million in sales, I'm sure dear and Jemima is starting to become a little concerned about you, right? So with all those resources that they have, have the larger brands given you any trouble as you really started to scaling and enter penetra- household penetration?
0: Oh yeah, the, the, the larger brands, they're, they're always nervous about uh, what I'll call challenger brands um, because they don't know how sticky the challenger brands can be. And we've seen outside of oatmeal, pancakes and frozen specifically, we've seen larger brands do some really interesting stuff. Um, you know, in pancakes, Aunt Jemima in 2020, they, they decided to change their brand to Pro Milling. Be, mm-hmm. just because of everything that was going on and when they did that like they 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 took a big hit and we are now within 3 share points of becoming the number one pancake brand which Congrats. for us is yeah it's it's insane i mean i remember when they had 25 28 30% share and here we were sitting at 4% share and I never thought it would have been possible to become the number one brand. I just thought, hey, if we could get to ten percent share, that'd be pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, but you know, we kept innovating in that category, kept trying to stay ahead of where they might go. You know, for Aunt Jemima to come out with a whole grain, higher protein product, yeah, it wouldn't totally resonate with their consumers. It's it's very value driven, and for them, Aunt Jemima, um Bisquick, those are cash cows for those businesses. They they're just reaping the cash. It's they're they're making really good margins. So they don't really want to spend in those categories. They're not strategic categories for them. And so if they give up the number one position, they're kind of okay with it. They don't totally care. I mean, they care, but maybe not as much. And so what we see is there are more challenger brands that, given that we've challenged, you know, there are other brands, they're like, Right, how can we challenge what Kodiak's doing?
1: Yeah, and, and so I've seen causes, some in Costco too, like yep. Birch Benders. Yeah, they're they're kind of uh, a new kid under the block. How are they doing?
0: Yeah, they're you know they're 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 doing they're doing well, right? And so that that's the thing. It's like for us, we want to make sure that we're leading, but then also that we're um, being mindful on people that might be challenging us. You know, we don't yeah. want to become the number one brand and then just sit on top of the leaderboard and say, All right, we're here, and then out of nowhere. Someone takes our spot from us, you know. And so for us, it's hey, we've got to be really vigilant about keeping this position. In Frozen, Ago had never really had a real challenger. Um, there were other brands that had been there, but they hadn't really challenged Ago's position. When we started coming there, we started having some success. Um, so Ago or Kellogg's launched a brand called Off the Grid. And they launched it. They launched three items: they were high, whole grain and higher protein. And when we saw those, we were like, "Oh wow, this is this is interesting. That's actually a good product." And we tasted it. We're like, it "Doesn't taste too bad." Um, it didn't work. It, it, it flopped. And so they took those products and they rebranded them to like Kashi. And so you have these big brands that are like, "All right, what can we do? How can we block them out?" But when you have a brand like Kodiak that resonates with consumers. And so we're like we're trying to be as authentic as we possibly can. We're trying to be approachable. So if you create a new brand, that new brand has to create those type of feelings. So someone might trade over for a moment, but then they're still tied to oh yeah, that, that emotional attachment that they have to Kodiak. And so for us, we still see ourselves as a challenger brand. We still nice. see ourselves as you know, we're trying to grow in pancakes and oatmeal and, and, and in frozen. Um, but the big brands, we see them trying different things. You see it across the grocery store where they're trying to block out those challenger brands. And it's hard for them to do that because consumers don't see them as the challenger brands. Consumers sees them as old, tired marketing engines instead of this authentic, uh, approachable brand.
1: Yeah. Listen, Cameron, I have literally probably another hour of questions for you, and I know that we're running out of time. So I'm going to ask my last business question before my final question. Okay. (laughs) So let's shift gears. Let's talk about success and the ego. So at one point you become the man, (laughs) the one that beats all odds. Everyone looks up to, you know, cousins and elementary school friends you never met are knocking on your door. And everyone thinks you're the shizzle, right? So when that happens, does the ego creep in? And on the flip side, what about imposter syndrome?
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I, if 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 I'm being honest, I still feel like I don't know what I'm talking about. I still feel like. I have so much more room to grow, to learn, to evolve as a leader, to evolve as um, even someone in the industry who who could be looked up looked up to. Um, Joel and I were at the Sweet and Snack show um, uh, about a month ago. And when we were walking in the show, this lady came up to us and she's like, um, she she had a she had a booth there and she's like, um, oh my gosh, I I I like she's basically like I worship you guys and Joel and I are like whoa whoa <laughs> like like hold up that's like because you know so often we don't I don't even see the success that we have and feel like all right I've arrived because I'm just focusing on where we're trying to go and where I'm trying to go. And, you know, when, when we passed 200 million a few years ago, it was, it was like in the fall, like September that year we had passed the annual revenue 200 and I was driving with my wife and, um, I remember I told her, I was like, yeah, so I just got the numbers and, and we just passed 200 million. And she was like, really? And I was like, yeah. And, um, she went inside to grab some stuff real quick. And, and while she was gone, I was sitting there to myself. And I was thinking, cause she was like, wow, that's big. And I remember thinking, wow, that is big. Holy cow. I can't believe we're that big. It had never really sunk in. And so whenever people are like, oh, I can't believe you've done this. This is so cool. I don't really feel like I've done much. If I'm being honest, like I don't, I, I, I know that we've done a ton here at Kodiak and, and, and we've been so fortunate and, and it, it's just, I don't know. I just don't see it as like, all right, now I arrived. Now I know everything because I'm like, I'm still trying to figure stuff out. I'm still trying to figure out all this uh, inflation, all the supply chain, all like all that stuff, like how to grip with that, because I'm trying to focus on where we're going, not where we were. And I think that also applies to us individually that ego creeps in when you focus on where you were and what you've accomplished, mm. I've done this, look at how great I am. But if you're constantly focusing on where you're trying to go, then I don't know that you'll ever have an ego because have have you ever arrived there? Have you ever gotten there? Right. It's like, because every time you achieve something, it's like, okay, now I want to go do this. Now I need to accomplish this. And so I think for me, it's like, guys, I'm not that great. I don't know everything. And a lot of it, like, We've learned along the way. We've been really fortunate and what worked for us may not work for you or you made, you probably could learn it in half the time that, I mean, look, I've been at Kodiak for almost 13 years and it took us 13 years to go from a million to, you know, call it 350. So in, in that time, you're like, Holy cow, but that's huge. I'm like, that's a long time to be learning that <laughs> someone yeah. could probably, there are brands today that are learning that in a much condensed time period. And, um, and so I think that's why like the whole ego thing, um, f- uh, for me, I, I always want to make sure that I don't have an ego. We have, Joe and I talk a lot about this, that we want to be approachable. We want the brand to be approachable. And I, I remember people who took time to talk to me that were real, that I was like, that's so cool that they just spoke to me. And, um, and, and I want to have that same thing. I want to be able to just talk to people and just be like, yeah, look, I'll oh, share what I know. I don't know everything, but what I've learned, like that helped and maybe it can help you. And then on the imposter syndrome and, and your question on that, I think I, I, I definitely felt it. I mean, definitely when you're in meetings or when people are like, Hey, we want to hear you talk. And I'm like, <laughs> hey, guys, I'm not like, I, 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 I'll share some thoughts, but I definitely don't know um, everything. And I'm still trying to learn a lot. I think with the imposter syndrome, I think there's a level of you need to have personal confidence. You need to believe in yourself. And the imposter syndrome, I think if if you see yourself for who you can become and you're trying to become that person, then you're not trying to uh, be an imposter. You're trying to be authentic to your future self. Mm. If you're trying to be authentic to your future self, you're you're not trying to fake anything. It's I want to be this person, so I need to act and do like that person would act and do. That therefore I can become that person. And so I think for me, I'm I'm always trying to focus and think about that. Now, with that said, we'll have team meetings and we have 120, 130 people on the team, and I'm standing in front of the whole team, and I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> this is a big group, like, what I, and they're all looking to me like I should know what I'm talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. like half the thing. Like, so, you know, so yeah, there's a little bit of okay, guys, we've got to do this. In the back of your mind, you're like, I think, <laughs> you know. So yeah, but yeah, you're you're not wrong. We definitely go through um, both those um, feelings and think about a lot.
1: You know, I met many entrepreneurs along my journey. I've been doing this for a while, and. Very rarely, you and I met when we partnered up together with Michael Haig and did a webinar on storytelling for Kodiak Cakes. And when I first met you, I immediately saw the kind, gentle, hardworking, honest human being that you are. But what what really came out is humility. And I think that if you're talking about the ego, humility is the antidote for the ego. If you're, you don't have to be self-loathing. I'm not talking about humility and it's like, oh, poor me, I'm not good enough. I hate myself. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not the person that I need to be. That's not who you are. You're like, dude, I've accomplished it and I got a long way to go and I know I do. So I don't know everything. And that's what makes an incredible entrepreneur. And I'm sure Joel's pretty much the same because if you have this kind of partnership and if you got to two, three 300000000 million and you're going to where you're going, I promise you it wasn't by accident. It was because you were able to build a great culture, a great company, and build yourself up over the years. You are a different person today than you were, and a lot of people are not. I meet people 20 years later and they're the exact same person, and I'm talking about most people, the exact same person that they were when you first meet them. So Cameron, that was you know an incredible, incredible interview, but I just want to ask one more question which is the question that I ask all of my guests and the seven hatters love this question. So I'd like to close on my interviews with the following. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success?
0: Um, before I answer that, I'll, 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 I'll say thanks. Thanks for your, um, your, your kind words. Um, I, yeah, th- anyways, it, 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 mean, it means a lot. On, on, on to the question, I, so when you're an entrepreneur and, and, and even still for me to say entrepreneur, it's like, <laughs> I, that I feel like an entrepreneur, but, uh, you know, based on the definition of the word, sure. When you're doing, well,
1: you're not you're a doing, banker. Okay. Let's just put yeah, it this way. <laughs> I'm not, I'm
0: not a banker. I, <laughs> I definitely know that. Um, when you're, when you're, when you're doing that, you the, the team looks to you for the ideas, and you're the idea generator, and you throw a bunch of things against the wall, and you're kind of not necessarily challenging everything, but you are challenging what's possible. And so you are kind of asking that why? Like, why does it have to be this way? Why why can't it be a different way? And so when you're and so as you're growing, that's an asset, and, and people love it, and they love the energy that comes from that. When you get to a certain point. The team needs you to stop doing that. The team needs you to stop throwing out all the ideas and being feeling like you have to have all the answers. The team needs you to be empowering them and to clear their path. And so it was actually a really clear moment for me when I realized that the team actually needs me to clear their path. The team mm. needs me to stop throwing out all the ideas and say hey what if you tried this? What if you tried this? What if you tried this? What if you try this? And I needed to stop doing that. And I needed to become a leader for them. I needed to become a leader that I can say, Hey, um, what, you, what are your thoughts right here? I'm thinking about doing this and this, and this. Okay. Help me understand why you're trying to do that for these couple of reasons. Okay. Awesome. How can I support you in doing that? Uh, this and this and this and this. And this. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I, I love what you're doing. Let's make sure we're working on this and let's run with it. And they started to feel Okay. He, he like we've got a, a working relationship, and 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 it was just that transition that is is very hard for entrepreneurs to do because you're used to tinkering, to being involved, and 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 touching everything and influencing everything, and the team needs you to evolve to stop doing that and to lead the organization, help prioritize, and um, be the leader to see where it's going and. It's, 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 it's a hard transition. It's a transition that, like, I mean, honestly, I'm still going through because I love the ideas. I, I love thinking those through, but the, the team can come out with better ideas than even you did if you allow them to do that. But yeah, I, I love the question because um, I, I saw that very clearly, especially as we were growing really fast.
1: That was one of my favorite responses out of all of the responses so far out of my guests. One incredible response. I'm going to stop there for just a beat. Because I want the seven hatters to really just rewind and listen to what Cameron just said. The transition from a founder to an executive to a leader, there's different stages. At every point in one's career, you have those that follow you because they believe that you're going to take them to the promised land and those that follow you because you're giving them a job and you're their boss. Okay, it doesn't matter how and where you are, that's where you're going to be. But the notion where you start understanding that you are not the leader that makes things happen, you are the leader that pulls those up to make things happen, which is just exactly what you just said, that's when you step into another level of leadership. So Cameron, thank you for that. I think it's going to help a ton of people to at least aspire to get there. It's not easy it's hard to delegate in the beginning, but forget about, you know, what you just said, tell Mm -hmm. the seven hatters what you're currently up to. If you need them to get in touch with you for any reason, or you just want, they just want to say hi, how do they connect with you? What do you have going for you at this point?
0: Yeah. Um, so I'm, you know, still, still, still really involved in, in Kodiak and, uh, you know, trying to identify what's what's next for the brand and how we can continue to to grow and evolve, um, where we're going, I also get pretty energized by by new ideas, by what's possible. Um, you know, so I think I think for me, there is always room for innovation. There's always room for disruption, um, and that's not even talking about the categories where Kodiak's playing in or where Kodiak can be playing. Throughout, I mean, if I'm just thinking just of food specifically, throughout the grocery store, there are still so many places for disruption. Of course. Um, And so from he, like, I I love hearing about new ideas. I love hearing about, um, what, what people are working on, um, to, to identify what's something else that can scale. What does that look like? So, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. I, um, reach, reach out to me there. You can email me my Kodiakcakes.com email. It's just Cameron.Smith at at Kodiakcakes.com. Love to stay in contact with people.
1: And do you mentor?
0: I do. Yeah. I'm chatting. I'm, I'm, I'm working with a few right now. Um, and it's fun actually. It's a, it's a lot of fun for me because I, uh, it's some, the questions that they're working through, um, is, is basically like, for me, I'm like, okay. I, I, I it, 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 like for, for them, it might feel like, I don't know what to do. And for me, it's like, It's like the ball's coming a little slower, and I can like hit it a little bit easier because I remember when we did went through that. I remember those those challenges, and so so it's fun to mentor because I've been fortunate to have some great mentors who have helped help me grow. And and really, the best mentor will help you see your full potential. Um, and 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 that's what a great mentor does. And so yes, I mean I like reach out like I love, love doing that type of stuff.
1: Awesome. And that's why hat number six is the philanthropist hat, because once you make it and once you're successful, you know, it's almost your duty to give back and help others. Cameron, it was an absolute, absolute pleasure having you on the seven hats. The seven hats, I absolutely love you. It's going to be a great conversation. I can't wait for it to go live. Thank you. Thank you for being a guest.
0: No, th- Thanks for having me on. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. And, and just like you said, there's a lot of things we could talk about. There's, there's so many things oh, going God. on and, and it's all fun. It's all energizing, but I uh, really appreciate the time and, and the conversation.
1: Awesome. Me too. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Cameron. Let's end today with the show segment that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. The consumer packaged goods, CPG industry, is incredibly difficult to break into. I know firsthand the challenges CPG founders face in getting a product off the ground and breaking that $1 million top-line revenue milestone, let alone what Cameron and Joel were able to achieve with hundreds of millions of dollars per year. I can't even imagine what it's like to overtake a product like Aunt Jemima or Bisquick, who enjoyed a top share on the shelf for decades as household names. Cameron explained that to have a chance at CPG success, you must achieve household penetration and increase the velocity at the shelf level. If you can't sell your product by raising awareness with the shopper, the buyer will discontinue your product. The trick is knowing when to say no to potential new business and avoiding the lure of that large initial purchase order. Depending on the cash position of your brand, you may be better off saying no to a large retailer such as Whole Foods, Costco, or Kroger, and building up your fan base with smaller regional customers. Otherwise, if you spend all your funds trying to support a large customer, but without the ability to grow sales velocity, then the chances of your brand going under are almost certain. I've been there and seen it more than I'd like to admit. If you have a good product that shoppers like and repurchase, and you focus your energy on promoting effectively, Without overspending, you too have a chance, like Cameron, to build a destructive brand. I want to thank Cameron once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high-quality people into our 7 Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selik and I tip my hat to you.